Hello, everyone. Welcome to Arash's World. Today, we have uh, a special guest, Becky Morrison. Welcome to the show, Becky Morrison. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Wonderful. So let's get started with um, if you can introduce yourself in any way you see fit, how would you describe yourself here briefly? What would you say? So usually when I meet people, I start by telling them that I'm a mom. And then I tell them that I'm a lawyer turned happiness coach. And that's about all we need to get the conversation going. Because when people hear that I started as a lawyer and now I coach people and help them find their happiness recipe, they've got questions, right? Naturally, they're like, how did that, how did that happen? And that's exactly my question here. And I was hoping you'd start like that. So you are a lawyer, a financial professional mm -hmm. turned to uh, a leadership and happiness coach. Um, what prompted that? So, I mean, it's interesting when people ask that question, there isn't one thing I would say that prompted it. It's the culmination of almost, I mean, so I'm 46. So it's a, a lifetime journey to get to this point, right? And it starts with the way a lot of our stories start, doing all the things that I thought I should do, right? Going to school, getting the degrees, getting the grades, getting the job, having the title, getting the paycheck. And then found myself um, kind of early in my legal career, I was a litigator and newly married and had a toddler daughter, young daughter. <clears throat> and I found myself one evening sitting on the floor of the bathroom with my toddler in the tub and the cordless phone clipped to the back of my pants, paper spread all around me, toilet seat cover closed, notebook on the toilet seat cover. So I'm doing two things at the same time. I'm bathing my toddler and I'm working with an expert to prepare them for their upcoming testimony. And I think to myself, well, I'm killing it. Like I literally, you can do, who says you can't do it all? Like I'm here, I'm a parent, I'm a great mom. I'm having success at work. I'm on track to be partner. Um, and then the next thought, which came less than a beat later was, and I'm exhausted and this is unsustainable. And I'm not sure I'm even enjoying being a lawyer, even though I'm good at it. So what the heck do I do with that piece of information? So that moment was that toddler who was in the bathtub is about to graduate from high school this year. So it was a, about 15 years, 16 years ago that that moment happened. And what happened in the intervening 16 years was a journey through a career where I really tried to discover for myself and untangle, what does it mean to live in a way that I'm aligned with my, my top priority in each season and that I'm living as happy as possible without getting hung up on what it seems like I quote unquote should do. And so the first step of that was leaving the practice of the, the traditional practice of, of law and moving to a hybrid um, sort of legal administrative role at a law firm where I was able to have a lot more control over my schedule to be a more present and available parent, to have a little bit more flexibility in my life, but still be engaging and using my brain in the ways that I liked. And so that's the beginning of the story, but it's, it's a winding path leading up to about three years ago when I again found myself at a crossroads. I didn't get laid off. I didn't get fired, but practically speaking, I needed to find a new job. And I, again, you'd think I would have learned, but I did the same thing. I did, well, what should I do? What could I do? What am I qualified for? And so here you're looking, you're talking about somebody who's got, you know, a decade plus of management, ex significant management experience. So people process background. I'm a bar lawyer. I've got legal experience. The list of jobs I'm qualified for is, is not short. And thankfully, I had a couple of people say to me, time out, instead of just applying for every job you think you're qualified for, what do you want to do? What is the, what is your top priority? I mean, like this is, you know, this is a conversation, Becky, that you've had with me when I've been in this position. Why are you not having it with yourself? What is your top priority right now? What do you want to be focused on? Um, and that, that led me to hire my first coach mm -hmm. and land on that. What I really wanted to do was work with other people to help them enable their success. And that mission got further refined when I went to my coaching training at UC Berkeley, um, where on the first day I was asked what my purpose was in sort of this exercise that we were doing, that that was one of the questions I was asked. And I answered without thinking. And I said, my purpose in this season is to spread joy. And then I looked around and I was like, who, who said that? Because I'm, I, I wasn't like consciously aware that that was what I was thinking. Um, and that's how I landed kind of squarely in the work that I'm doing today. That's wonderful. I'm wondering, like, if that is maybe something that has that is related to to our age, because I'm exact same age, I'm going through the same process, I'm in the same boat. Um, I've been in the teaching business in the teaching career for for two decades. And suddenly, it's like, 
it is nice. I'm good at it. I enjoy it. But there's something I want to do, which is exactly what I'm doing now, which is podcasting. And then it's trying to, like you say, untangle it and see, well, how can I make it work in terms of also finances? And that's mm-hmm. something you're, you're an expert in as well. So I'm wondering if it's uh, um, partly um, related to our age, but it's also maybe partly related to what is happening around the world with the pandemic, where there is the great resignation and people are realizing I like my job, but that's not what I want to do. That doesn't fulfill me. That doesn't give me joy and happiness. Yeah. And so before we even started hearing the words, uh, the great resignation, I started talking about what I recognized this to be, which is an era of global reprioritization. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the great resignation in my mind is a symptom of that. And it's exactly as you've described, people are waking up to the notion that There might be more to life than checking the boxes. There might be more to life than the shoulds that all of this pressure and hustle and go, go, go world that we live under might not actually be the answer to getting where we want to go. They're starting to realize that happiness doesn't come at the finish line, that it has to come along the journey, that an unhappy journey rarely has a happy ending. And so if I'm unhappy in my day to day, I'm kind of you know, it's like I, I need something needs to change. And we, I, the great resignation is an interesting thing because I think, I think in some cases it's a mistake. And let me explain. Okay. <laughs> when we find ourselves unhappy, most people look at their circumstances and they decide in order to solve my quote unquote happiness equation, I need to change one of these circumstantial variables. I need to change my job. I need to change where I live. I need to change how I spend my free time. I need to change um, my relationship status. I need to change my health. The research says that our happiness, only 10% of it is truly influenced by our circumstances. Mm -hmm. Our biggest opportunity to influence our happiness comes from our daily Um, intentional thoughts and behaviors. And so what we do though, is we think, okay, I'm going to, so I'm unhappy. Something's got to give time for a new job. Mm -hmm. And then we, we go and we get this new job and we, we solve what we think was the issue with our happiness, but we arrive in that new job and we find, well, we may have solved that. We have not in fact solved the important parts of the equation. And so what I find when I work with people one-on-one, because many of my clients come to me in that moment, that like, here I am in this crossroads moment, I need to figure out what I'm doing. The first thing that we actually do is we figure out how you can maximize your happiness right where you are today. Mm -hmm. And the reason we do that is because instead of escaping your unhappiness, I want you to architect your future happiness. And you can only architect that future happiness effectively from a place of maximum happiness. And it's slowly and it's step by step, right? And I think, as you're saying, I agree with you. It's it's a big move where you say, okay, now I'm going to start a new, start fresh and like clean slate. And uh, you do, and we want to be careful with that. I agree with that. But there's also people who have like their jobs and they are okay. They're not unhappy, but they're they're kind of satisfied, but they're not happy either. Right. So, and really tapping into that and saying, well, what gives me pleasure? I mean, yes. I wake up and I want to do it, not I have to go to work. Yes. So, so that is, that is, uh, that is work to, to try to uncover that, to, to yes. realize what it is that, uh, that we can get to, to be your authentic self. So um, your book is, by the way, The Happiness Recipe, uh, A Powerful Guide to Living What Matters. And I love the term recipe here because I, I like cooking. I like eating as well. And uh, so I and I like the uh, it's not one size fits all too, as you're saying. It's not just one recipe. You can season it according to your own taste and, and so on. So let's talk a bit about that. Yeah. And that, I mean, so that's kind of, kind of why I like the recipe analogy, too, is mm-hmm. I, I'm a cook. And I like to use recipes. I know there are many cooks who do not, right? They cook by instinct, by gut, by their past, whatever. But I like to use a recipe, but I also rarely use a recipe exactly as it's written. Exactly. And so, and often like one of my favorite things to do is to find a recipe, especially now that there's so many on the internet, and then to kind of read through the comments and look at all the ways that people have modified the recipe and think about, oh, well, I could add that, or I could do this, or I could do less of this, or maybe I'll try that. And so, um, I mean, that's really what it is, is sort of, the notion that your happiness recipe is truly personal. And that one of the big things that that trips people up is this belief that we have to be following a standardized recipe for success and that that success is gonna result in our happiness. 
That's not the way happiness works. And so how do you dial into what matters most to you? And so just to back up a little bit, my book is written from the premise that the recipe for maximum happiness is actually super, super simple. Do more of what matters and less of the rest. And now if you're listening and you're like, really, you wrote a whole book about just that idea? Yeah, I did. And here's why. Because even though it's super simple, there's a lot of things that get in the way of us executing on that. First of all, um, we have to know what actually matters most to us. And that's the first gap that I identify. I call it the, the authenticity gap. You could also call it the knowing gap. Are we truly tuned into what matters most to us? And can we distinguish in our lives that these are the things that feed that and these are the things that don't? And then the next question is, what do we do with that? And so there's two other gaps. And because we live in a go, 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 do, do, do culture, we typically go from knowing straight to doing, which is actually the third gap in my book. It's the physical energy gap. It's how are we executing on that alignment? How are we taking that, that simple recipe and applying it to our lives? How do we build habits that support that? How do I prioritize? How do I use celebration to fuel my nervous system? Those kinds of things. But the middle gap is the interesting one. It's, and it's the one that gets missed most often. It's do we actually have the supportive beliefs and feelings that will allow us to execute on that recipe? I call it the emotional energy gap. You could also call it the mindset gap. And it's where if you don't spend the time to do that inside work to really shift your beliefs and feelings, you're going to know and you're going to try to do, and then you're going to backslide right to the patterns that you're familiar with. And that's primarily because of our nervous system. So our nervous system also lives in that gap. So that is how I managed to write a whole book about that very simple formula, because I wanted to give people tools that they needed to close each one of those gaps. And often I find when I work with clients, it's a little bit of an iterative process, right? Like, you know, and then you have to work on the mindset and then you go and do, and then you have to re-explore the no, and then there might be a mindset thing that pops up and then there might be a doing thing. And then you might be doing, going along and then you start to backslide and you're like, oop, another mindset thing. And so there's this like very cyclical woven feel to it. But the notion is to empower you with all the tools you need to sort of continually do that and continually adjust as your seasons and your life changes. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, I can see the, the skills that you have and that you acquired as a lawyer and, uh, and a financial professional is applied here. And I think that's something that people should keep in mind. And when I yeah. look at, at myself, okay, my teaching career was not wa a waste of time because there are skills that you can carry over to whatever else you, you want to do. So that is definitely something that people also don't see. They think they're stuck in a career or a job. You can expand and use it in other and different ways in creative ways in, in other fields. And what you say about like what resonates with a person, I think that's that's hugely important. And most of the times we don't really know that. So in my experience was I would try things that I don't like and then say, okay, that's easier to identify. Mm -hmm. I don't like this kind of job or this kind of situation. And then from then you can eliminate all of that. And then you get to a core self. It's like, yeah, this is what I really like in comparison to the other stuff. So we need some sort of comparison. Would you agree with that? We need something to compare it with in our lives as well. I think it's different for different people, but I'll speak for myself. I'm a highly experiential learner. And so, yeah, I need to try it to know whether it's a fit or not. And so, you know, in, in, in moments where I've been at career crossroads and I've tried to think more broadly, I often have gotten tripped up by saying, well, I don't think I would like that. Yeah. But I have learned that I need to like, I need to sample it. I need to get a little taste of it to know for a long time. I was of the opinion because I grew up, um, raised by parents, one of whom had a very successful corporate career, that that's what you do. You work inside of a stable structure and that is safer and, and better and you'll have more success. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, I don't think I'd like to be an entrepreneur. Like, I don't think that would feel fun. I think it would feel risky. I don't think I would enjoy it. And then um, my husband and I about, I guess it's seven years ago, started a nonprofit, um, basketball related, like nonprofit sports team. And I was like, Ooh, this is fun. Building something is really fun. I didn't know that I liked this. I didn't know that I was interested in this entrepreneurial stuff. And so it's like, how can you give yourself the tastes of things that you think you might not? I mean, I didn't note, I didn't leave my job and start a business just to try it, but it's like, how can you give yourself a flavor of it to see, to confirm, do you really like it? Or do you not like it? before you decide to write something off entirely or to go all in on something brand new. 
I think it boils down also to the comfort zone that we have, and we we don't want to step out of it. It's like it's something that's like, well, it's nice, or it's okay, it's not perfect, but yeah, it's okay, and I will stick to it. But we are afraid of stepping out and trying something new, and I think that kind of uh, exploring, I think that's important to explore, to find out, to to sample, as uh, to again use food analogy, and also with different types of foods. You like you say I do, I say I don't like fish, but then there are some types of fish that uh, I try. It's like, well, this is good, you know. Yeah, it turns out. <laughs> I like fish. yourself in your options. I think yes. that a lot of it is because we're afraid of taking a step out of something that's familiar to us, an environment or a job or a career. And I, I think we do need to try to, to, to expand that. Yeah. And I, I, and I think some of it too, is like recognizing that you're not going to be able to see the finish line from where you sit almost ever. Like if I went back and told that woman sitting on the bathroom floor with the toddler that, Oh, by the way, like you're going to go from this point where you're a litigator and on partnership track to someday being an author of a book about happiness and a happiness and leadership coach. She would have been like, yeah, no, that there's no way. Like, I can't even conceive of that. I can't even, I can't even see the, the path that would connect A to B, you know, and, or even like, she would have been like, what's a coach and why would I do that? And happiness. What? That's so fluffy. Like, why would you ever, um, and so just leaving room for poss- possibilities that you don't even know yet to arrive. And I've even seen that in my, since starting my business. My business has evolved in ways that I didn't anticipate. I didn't start this business three years ago thinking I'm going to write a book about happiness and start you know, delivering. I knew I was going to coach one-on-one. I didn't know what the specific sort of focus would be, but I didn't, I definitely didn't foresee delivering programs to other businesses to help help people in like an employment context or a team context increase their happiness. I didn't, I would never have even three years ago have seen that as a possibility. So not that I didn't know that business to business, you know, information delivery and teaching was a thing. I knew that was a thing. I just didn't see how I would be doing it. Right. And so allowing it to unfold is part of the process too. I think it's also things fall into place. And even if we don't have a clear plan, we do need to take the first steps and maybe even share the ideas with ourselves, with others and so on to kind of formulate something. And uh, and so that's something I would I would tell myself, I want something like this, but I don't know how or when. Or yes. how. But once you take that path, I found, and it, it is quite odd, things f- slowly fall into place if you are perceptive. And one yes. of the things that has uh, has always fascinated me and has always helped me in my life are coincidences, where things happen for no reason, but it's actually the it's showing you the path. It's yep. this is the thing to do. This is the job to apply for. This is the uh, course yep. to take, and so on. And I don't think people listen enough to to that gut feeling, that intuition, those like um, great gifts that we get, if you like, from the universe that just kind of show up and show us which way to to go. I mean, you're talking my language. It, one of the biggest and most important lessons I've learned, and this is a more recent learning, is that yes, my brain is incredibly powerful, right? I've done a lot of brain-based activity. I've had a lot of brain-based success, but I am leaning more and more into the notion that there is a decision-making engine that lives outside my brain. And that that decision-making engine will, when I trust it and listen to it, not ever steer me wrong. And when that decision-making engine tells me to do something or not do something, I actually don't need to intellectualize it. Mm -hmm. I don't need to be able to explain it. I don't need to analyze it. I don't need to second guess it. And I'll give you like a super, so I've been playing a lot with my intuition and I'll give you a super silly example. The other day I went to the grocery store and I was just picking up a few things because I was going to make tacos for dinner. And I thought I had pretty much everything, but I forget what I needed, maybe like jalapenos or something. So I'm like, grab my jalapenos and I'm rolling past the meat case and I hear this little whisper like from my gut or whatever and it's like buy some ground beef because that's what we use to make our tacos and I'm like I already have ground beef like why would I need more ground beef I don't like I'm not buying the ground beef and I'm like arguing with myself about the ground beef and then I you know my intuition is like just buy it if you already have it you can always freeze it and I'm like I'm good I don't need the ground beef come home I've got the jalapenos I go to start cooking I open the refrigerator no ground beef. Somebody else had used it for something. Somebody else in my family had cooked something with it early in the week and didn't tell me. 
Oh my God. Okay. And I'm like, why didn't I listen? Right. And so it's those little nudges that you can play with in a really safe way. I mean, that was low hanging fruit. I could go back out to the grocery store and get ground beef, or we could have something else for dinner. It's not the end of the world, but it's like those little nudges that you can start to play with to like develop this relationship with your intuition so that when it comes to the big stuff, you land in the right places or the places that sort of are going to open the pathway in front of you. Are you in on the wordle craze? A little bit. I've been trying. Yeah. So here's a challenge to your listeners who are wordle players. I've been talking with another good friend of mine who's also a coach who really is in the intuitive space. And um, we've been talking about how we've been playing with our intuition when we're using, when we're playing wordle Mm -hmm. and how using our intuition to like stopping for a minute before we make our first guess and like tuning into our intuition, you get these weird words that come and then you play them and you're like, you get it in like three, three guesses. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, this is a fun game. So I just challenge you, if you like Wordle, this mm-hmm. is another way you could play with it. And it's an opportunity to connect to that little voice that lives outside of your brain. Yeah, I, I think that is hugely important. Uh, years ago, I um, I saw a program called The Secret and uh, by Rhonda Byrne. And so, and when I watched it, I thought it was bogus. And I was like, okay, this is non-scientific, it's silly, but okay, I'll give it a shot. So what was amazing is, uh, and the idea is basically, it's very simplified here, but you make a wish. This is my mm-hmm. desire. I will mm-hmm. do whatever it takes to, to take that path. And I will actually show the effort. It's not just I want mm-hmm. to win the lottery. Um, but then slowly, again, like we were saying, things fall into place and there is that path and your wish comes true. And I, I tried it out. And it has to be in a way, of course, a bit realistic, but you can also stretch it a bit more and say, okay, I would like to have this. And it's amazing how that actually uh, tends to work. And I'm I'm baffled by that. In a yeah. Good way. <laughs> yeah. And it's for me, it's about striking the right balance of So I talk a lot about um, leaving room to co-create, right? Whether you believe in the secret or manifestation or God or the universe or greater power of some sort or no greater power, I think it's about leaving space in what we do for like the the energy to meet us. In other words, to recognize that we don't have to do it all, that there's like an element of coincidence or fate or happenstance or lucky chance that's going to play a role in helping us get where we need to go and leaving room for that to come in and deliver and deliver in ways that you don't even expect. So I'll give an example from my business. I decided um, sort of middle of last year that I wanted to reach more people, right? I've written this book and I do one-on-one coaching, but there's this middle gap of like, how do I get to more people? And so I, I put out an offer to start, to start a, a, like a membership group. It wasn't really a clear offer. I just started floating it. So it's like, I took that action to say, I'm ready. I'm ready to meet, meet, reach more people. And do you know what came? Hmm. An opportunity to do a year long program on happiness for a group of attorneys at a law firm. Hmm. And I was like, well, that was not, I mean, I thought this is where I was going, but no, I'm, I'm doing it this way. And I didn't bring that up, like that opportunity really, truly, without getting into a ton of detail, just kind of developed organically. And so that's a great example of like asking for and then receiving, but allowing the room to receive in an unexpected way. Yeah. Yeah. My, my personal experience was after I, I finished studying, I got my, my degree, my master's degree, and it was, it was hard to, to enter the job market. I found a few yep. jobs, but then they didn't last because they would close down and so on. And then I said, I'm going to go to Mexico to, to teach. And that was just financially, that was probably a terrible decision because I had student loans. I wouldn't, mm-hmm. I wouldn't make minimum wage or even less than that. But it felt right. So it was quite amazing when I was on the plane, I met this, this Mexican guy who spoke English fluently. He was working in Alberta in, uh, in Canada. And he was thrilled. He was excited. He told me, oh my God, your life's going to change. You're going to get married and have kids. And I said, no, I'm just going for a year to teach. And he was right. Everything changed <laughs> after that. I did get married and I, I do have my son now. And it's just like, it was amazing that there was this voice that told me this. And I think it was just complete coincidence for me to go to that place in the first place. So it's just kind of, even if it doesn't seem logical, if this the is feeling is saying. strong, like your ground meat example, yep. I would say we need to, to listen to it and give it a try. Yep. Um, just to go more to also a more scientific view here, neuroscience, I'm fascinated by that. So what are some of the insights you would say that could help us to deal with, with this, uh, this happiness issue by looking at neuroscience and our brain? 
Yeah. I mean, so the biggest, the biggest thing that I've learned, and I am not a neuroscientist, I am just a person, a lifelong learner who enjoys understanding things. And, um, so I'm going to talk about the nervous system, but I'm not going to talk about it in like very scientific terms. I'm going to talk about it in super practical terms. One of the biggest things, and you referenced it, our comfort zone, but one of the biggest roles that our nervous system plays in our lives is to keep us safe. You all have heard of the fight fight or flight response. Now I think it's evolved to fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. There's a fourth now (laughs) that I'm hearing, but, but the notion is that we have sort of this like triggered response that is not a very logical, very high executing executive functioning place that we go when our nervous system senses threat. Okay. So that's foundational. The second thing that you need to understand is the part of our nervous system that manages that sort of threat awareness. Um, the pathways in the body um, that go from body to brain outweigh the pathways that go from brain to body by a ratio of 80 to 20%. Why is that relevant? What I think that means or what the science scientists think that means is that our body actually senses threat before our brain does. Mm-hmm. Okay. Why is that exciting? Well, what it means is that you have an opportunity when you can connect with your body intelligence to recognize that you're going into a pattern, a trigger pattern, like a a nervous system triggered place and do something about it before you get there. Why would you want to do something about it before you get there? Well, there's a couple reasons. First, like I said, when we're in that triggered place, we are not at our highest executive functioning. So if you find that, for example, I'll use a workplace example that you, that you typically don't function well in conversations that feel confrontational, chances are that that is a trigger for you, that you don't like confrontation, that there's a past pattern programming under that, that says confrontation, scary confrontation, bad, don't go there. And so your nervous system is triggered. And then all of a sudden you're having the difficult conversation, but you're not even having it from your highest self. You're having it from this triggered space. If you can begin to notice the triggers in your body before those things happen and identify what they are, you can start to work with them. So if, for example, taking that same example, you know that it's, it's, I don't like confrontation. When you get that feeling in your gut that precedes confrontation, all you need to know is that gut feeling, oh, I'm about to be triggered. What am I going to do about that? Two choices, work with it or walk away. Those are your only two choices because going forward means that you're going to be operating at less than optimal levels. So work with it can look like taking some steps to regulate your nervous system and remind it that, yeah, okay, maybe there was a time in our lives where confrontational conversations were quote unquote dangerous and danger simply means it doesn't mean like being chased by a big bear. It means I'm in danger of not getting my needs met, but I'm an adult now. I, Becky, am 46 years old, and I promise that I will make sure that our needs get met, even if I go and have this confrontational conversation. And sometimes that acknowledgement can be enough to calm down the system. But there are also some things you can do really quickly to move the energy. Shake, like literally, you know, you see dogs do it. That is how they finish their stress cycle. They shake. You can shake. You can do some breathing. There are some great, simple, simple breathing techniques. One is... um, called vagal breathing because it's the vagus nerve that's involved in this piece of your nervous system. So if you can go in through your nose for four and out for eight, in other words, double out than in, that calms that nerve. So that's something you could do even if you're sitting in a conversation that's starting to feel confrontational. You can have that little brief internal conversation with your nervous system to remind it that you hear it, that you appreciate that it's raising its hand, that you understand it wants to keep you safe, but that you're going to keep it safe. And then you can do a couple breaths and often that'll settle that feeling. And then you're back to being able to function at your highest in every situation. And so those are just like the small number of a wide list of examples that you can use to regulate your nervous system. Um, But I think being aware of what's going on is the first step. And when I do this work with clients, they're often surprised that they in fact have patterns and that they can actually name those patterns based on where they hit. You know, that the sweaty palms mean one thing and the beating heart means another thing. And the pit in the stomach means a uh, yet a third thing. And then the like turning nauseous stomach means a fourth thing. I mean, the list goes on, right? The key is not to judge them, but to observe them and to allow them and to recognize them. And you're not, I want to be super clear. You're not saying to that pit in your stomach, like, shh, I got work to do. 
you're saying, I hear you and thank you, but I got you. Mm-hmm. See, now, now you're speaking my language as well. I think there's the, all these unconscious factors that are at play that we don't realize. And often we're too hard on ourselves. We're too judgmental. We try to control things. And exactly what you're saying, it's really like recognizing it, identifying it, um, kind of also figuring out, kind of being curious about it. So why am I feeling this way? And let it give it space, give it room to to expand. And then it kind of dilutes and goes away in many cases where you realize (laughs) this is not really a threat. But a lot of people are on the defensive because they're scared. And so it comes out in anger. It comes out. And again, the, the brain is not functioning optimally, as you're saying. And what happens is the amygdala kind of takes hostage of the higher parts. So you can't think rationally and you can't expect the, that person to think rationally. So yes. it's, it's, it's kind of we have to be careful also on the other side when we're receiving the anger from that person, not to take it in a personal way and realizing oh, they're going, they feel threatened. They're feeling threatened for whatever reason. We don't really know, but it's, it's that, that's, that, that thing that's going on. And a lot of it, as you're saying, I think comes uh, from, from childhood patterns, from things, experiences we've had, negative experiences. And yes, the body and the brain is trying to protect us from it. Yep. But in many ways, yes, we're out of that situation. We're not stuck there. We need to move on. We need to, in, we need to grow up. And it's like maturity is not necessarily your age. It's really your emotional maturity to have being able to, to deal with those feelings. And again, not being dragged back to that state, that emotional state that we had when we were children or younger. Yeah. And I mean, look, the reality is you're probably not ever going to stop being triggered. Of course. It's so it's not about growing out of the triggers. It's about how are you, how quickly are you regulating from that trigger? How quickly are you coming back to a baseline place of, of nervous system control? And, you know, the more work I do with this with clients, and then even in my own life, the more like you find layers and layers and layers, right? Like I've, I I'm aware of this stuff. I've been working on it for sort of consciously for multiple years now. And you know, the, just the other day, my husband and I were having a contentious conversation and all of a sudden I popped up and I'm bouncing around the kitchen and he's like, fr- then he's getting frustrated because why are you not listening to me? Mm-hmm. You won't even pay attention. And I realized, oh, I literally went right into a pattern of like, I can't handle this situation. I need to escape. And my escape didn't look like leaving the room, but it looked like leaving that very close space. And then I was trying to like subconsciously trying to move the energy out of me by moving But once he kind of called it out, I was like, oh, yeah, no, what I really needed to do was either actually excuse myself and take a few deep breaths or just ask him to like, can we pause this and take a couple deep breaths together to to just bring the level of this conversation back down to where we can hear each other? Because ultimately we love each other and that's what we want. And you can't reason in that state and you can't expect the other person to reason. Exactly. Absolutely. I think one of the things for me is I, I'm that my Chinese uh, horoscope sign is rabbit and we, we don't like confrontation. I want peace. And I, I took it in the sense of, I don't want to have confrontation, confrontational discussions in the first place because that could trigger it and I would avoid it. But what happens is things get much worse that way. So you do need to, to open up to that. And even, it feel, even if it feels uncomfortable, like you're saying, I get triggered to go through that process. And the more you do it, and that's the great thing about the brain too, the more you do it, the easier it will get. And it's like any skill. And this is also a skill. Uh, The more you practice, the better you get at it. And then the less worried you are about it. And it becomes more automatic. Yes. And I mean, you know, there's something too, like the thing I want to say, tying it back to happiness is this notion that Living a happy life isn't about not ever having tough things happen, not ever having tough emotions, not ever being in the tough stuff. To me, though, it's about this. It's about being able to work with and move through and allow the tough things to move, right? And so when I think about, you know, because I'm similar, I'm not a huge fan of confrontational conversations, as I just described. And um, But then when you stop to think about, well, what is underneath that fear? And do you know what almost always is underneath that fear? Not all the time, because there are some that this is not the case, but certainly with people that I'm close to, what is underneath that fear almost all the time is two things. One is love. Mm -hmm. 
I love this person and I don't want to hurt their feelings and I don't want to have a tough interaction with them because I love them. Makes sense. And two, I don't know if I deserve to have my needs met. Mm-hmm. So worthiness is also usually under that fear, mm-hmm. but it's being able to like really have it be a, in a place where I can name that and remind myself that I am just as my husband or my son or my daughter or my friend deserves to have their needs met and I love them and I want to meet their needs. They love me and they want to meet my needs. And how do we do that if we cannot talk about our needs? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that might not be always a fun conversation. And being aware of them. And many, many times we're not even aware yes. of our needs and yes. what, what makes us happy and what we want from the other person. And what I think in terms of relationships is also it goes both ways and both it needs to be give and take. There needs to be balance. It needs to be my needs are met, but so are yours. And yes. if, it's, if it's lopsided or one-sided, then that's not going to bring happiness for anyone. Right. Either one of uh, in, in that relationship. And what about, uh, I mean, with children, I, I think that with it, uh, there's um, a lot of challenges, responsibilities and so on, but also a lot of happiness, just the, the simple fact of, of, of having a child. And you mentioned that, which I really like to say, a, a, a happy mom and uh, you enjoy that. But what are also some of the learning experiences that maybe your child has uh, taught you how to be happy? Is there anything that we can talk about here? What would you say? I mean, I could spend 12 podcast episodes talking about the things I've learned from my kids, right? I mean, but what I'll, what I, what I want to do in terms of talking about, about parenting and happiness is remind people that this is an area where like every area, it's, it's like every other area where it is incredibly important where your focus is. Mm-hmm. If you focus on the challenge, you will find more challenge. If you focus on the good, you will find more good. And that is not to suggest, and I want to be really clear when I say focus, I don't mean focus exclusively, right? It's not ignore, Mm -hmm. but it's like, what are you savoring? If you think about it back in that food context, right? If I sit down to eat dinner and I eat my favorite dinner and I don't really think about it and I'm in front of the TV and then all of a sudden I look down and it's gone. Versus if I sit down at the table with my favorite dinner and I light a candle and I really enjoy each bite, what are you savoring? Are you savoring the challenge or are you savoring the positive? Mm -hmm. And when you savor the positive, that changes your whole perspective on the situation, including the challenges. Mm -hmm. So it's really easy right now because the world is a stressful place. There are so many things going on. Raising kids in a, I'll say a quote unquote, normal circumstances is a challenge in and of itself. Raising kids in these circumstances is like a layer cake of challenge. Yes. But how can you savor the good things? Mm-hmm. How can you let those be the noisiest parts instead of the challenge? And my kids, um, you know, have been a part of this journey of me sort of <laughs> leaning into this happiness world and writing this book. And so we talk a lot about this stuff and it has changed the fabric of our family mm-hmm. because we notice the little good things in a way that we never used to. We used to allow them to sort of mindlessly pass. Mm-hmm. And so I would say that is the biggest happiness lesson that I've learned kind of more recently as a parent. And also to go with the flow in many ways of being in that moment of that age, because I I know a lot of parents are anxious and myself included, and we want the best and we try to push too much and push, push them uh, on and uh, maybe just let them be in many situations. Uh, That's one thing and just accept their age, right? So this is their stage. This is how they feel. This is how they reason. And then later on, they become critical. And then you wish that you would go back to the earlier stage. Mm-hmm. Now, it's like good criticism um, uh, that uh, I have to take. And it's like, you know what? You're right. And so so being able to accept all the different phases and stages, I think, is, is hugely important, too. Yeah. And I have another big one that, I, that comes up a lot for me is uh, this is just a reminder that if you haven't recently asked your kids what they need from you and what they want from you, to do that. Because the other thing that I confront a lot of is sort of that, that parental guilt of like, I'm not showing up as a parent the way that I believe that I should in order to be a quote unquote, good parent. And I want to remind you that the only thing you have to do is be the parent that your child needs. Mm -hmm. But in order to be the parent that your child needs, you have to know what they need. You have to know what matters to them. You have to know what kind of interaction and engagement is significant to them. And you have to know what they feel that they might be lacking. 
And each one is different too. A hundred percent. Exactly. And you might be surprised. You might be surprised to learn that, you know, like, I'll just take a simple example. <clears throat> you know, there's the, the parent who says, well, I, you know, I just, I, I can't get to school during the day to go to the event. And I feel like that, you know, they must be so sad that they're the only person without a parent there. And then when you sit down and talk to the kid, they're like, why would I care about that? You're, you, you know, we eat dinner together every night, or we go running together, or we go and play soccer in the yard, or you're at every soccer game or whatever the alternative thing is that has value to them is what they're focused on. But we get so hung up in our head that we're not delivering what we think we're supposed to be delivering and da, 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 da. have the conversation, have the conversation. And if you're thinking, Becky, my kid is two. have the conversation. Yes. But have it in a way that a two-year-old can appreciate yeah, it. Absolutely. Yeah. What do you like doing most with mommy? Mm-hmm. And like, just take their answer. Mm-hmm. And by the way, if they're two, it's going to change in about 24 hours. You should ask it again. <laughs> but, but you know what I mean? Like really be willing to start that dialogue. And I think that's important for two reasons. One, it allows you to be free from the guilt that you might be carrying that's misplaced. And number two, you're teaching your kid, and we talked about this, to identify what they want and need and be willing to ask for it, that it's safe to do that that it's safe to say what I want and what I need. And, and to take this again further and to look back and what were my needs when I was a kid and often they were not uh, met or fulfilled for various reasons yep. and without like getting in a place of blame and so on, but just realize, okay, these are the things that lacked in my relationship with my parents. Now I want to make sure that my, my children have those and the needs are met and really looking at that because a lot of people just are triggered, like you're saying, and unconsciously they reenact the same way they were treated when they were children and and then you get in that into that vicious cycle that's doing nobody any good and creates more unhappiness in the family. Yeah. And even with those needs, I still think the conversation is important, right? Mm-hmm. Because like, if, if I think about back to my own childhood, I, I couldn't really even name specific, but like, let's say I, I grew up feeling like I wished my parent was more present. I don't really think that was true for me, but let's just say, right. And then, then as an adult, I say, well, I want to be a really present parent. I have notions as an adult of what that means, but what would it look like for my kid? If I was present, what would they, how would they define the important moments? You know, we have an agreement in my family that when kid, kid events or really any family event comes up, we get to ask, is this a, is this a, you really want me there or you don't care? And they're allowed to say, I don't care. And then I get to decide, do I still want to go? Cause it's important to me to be there. That's fine. But it takes the pressure off. And when they say, when somebody says, I really wish you could come, I really would appreciate your support. That's the thing that I'm moving everything that I can to do. Do I do it hundred percent of the time? No. Can anyone do it hundred percent of the time? Probably not, right? Life is life. Things come up. We have client demands. We have work demands. We have life demands. We're sick sometimes like stuff happens, mm-hmm. but knowing that it matters then and being able to do the repair from not being there in the moment is equally important. Yeah. I think being mindful about that, mindful of the situation, what would be the response that the person wants? And again, reacting to that and being responsive to that, that is hugely important too. And just looking at also negative experiences. And um, as we're saying, we're talking about happiness, but in many cases, I think it's really those unhappy moments, those moments of suffering, those, those, those dark times, they have been the most fruitful. I've learned so much from them. And it's actually the main reason why I took this path. And once it's it's very uncomfortable, it's, it's, it, it's not a good feeling, but I think don't avoid it, don't evade it because it has so many lessons there that you can take from it and you can grow in that situation. And whereas if you just, if you're always happy, I think I, I wouldn't want that too, because there's a lack of growth there. That's right. And I mean, let me just add that there's like a cyclical nature to that too, because the research suggests that when we have these positive emotional experiences, so when we're living happier and having more positive emotional experiences, we do two things. In the moment of experiencing the positive emotion, we actually broaden our perspective. So we're better problem solvers. We're more creative. We're more equipped to like find the path forward. And we deepen. What does deepen mean? We actually literally put deposits. This is the way I think of it deposits into our resilience piggy bank. We are building the foundation so that when those tough times come, which are inevitable, we have the sort of savings to weather them and to weather them in a way that we are then allowed to grow after them. And that we, you know, that we aren't like 
set back to the beginning and having to start all over. And so it's like this very, to me, it's this very cyclical thing of like, I want to invest in happiness whenever, whenever I can, you know, like I want to buy it with every spare moment that I have, not stealing from the tough stuff. Cause I want to live that too. I want to experience it. I want to allow it to flow through me. I don't want to bypass it. I don't want to pretend it's not there because if I do that, that creates more problems. I don't want those. But whenever I have a neutral or a, you know, an available moment, I want to fill it with positive mm-hmm. so that when life brings the tough, tough and the, the free moments get smaller, I have the strength to get through. Yeah. Investment is too. I mean, we think of it in terms of money, but we don't think of it in terms of, again, time or emotions and so on, but that is an investment too. And even a relationship is, if you see it in, in that sense, it's an investment of, of, again, time and effort and so on. And if it's misplaced, you know, you're going to lose out. So it's it's that realization too, and investing into your, your uh, I like the piggy bank, the positive piggy bank that will help you to give you a sense of feeling, I got this. If something yep. happens, it's not overwhelming. I can manage it. And I like the idea of hurdles because hurdles are there to be overcome. We jump mm-hmm. over them. It's not something mm-hmm. that we stop. It's not a wall that stops us. It is a hurdle and we jump and we get better at it and so on. So we keep training. So I think it's also our mindset that's hugely important here of not seeing as a complete like threat as overwhelming, but being able to, to again, invest in ourselves through yep. introspection, through thinking, through analysis and so on, and then be able to, to deal with situations better. And then each time get stronger as we go and become more resilient, I think. Yes. Mm-hmm. And in those tough moments, right, in those seasons where perhaps the, on average, the negative is outweighing the positive, you still grab the positive while you can. Mm-hmm. You don't have to abandon the positive, right? Yeah. Like you don't, I, I think, you know, emotions or feelings are a funny thing. And we have this notion, and I think it's probably like somehow energetically or somewhat energetically true that like happiness and sadness can't coexist in the same moment, but for sure they can coexist in the same 60 seconds and they can coexist in the same hour and the same day and the same week and the same month. And so in my mind, when we think about it in a little bit broader than the moment, we really have a super highway of emotion running through us at any given time. And what we've been trained to do is to close as close a bunch of the lanes. Mm-hmm. I don't want you to close any more lanes. Mm-hmm. Let all the lanes be mm-hmm. open. Mm-hmm. Let all the lanes be open all the time. Mm-hmm. But as often as you can drive in the lanes that are neutral to positive, mm-hmm. like focus on those lanes, look for those lanes, invest in those lanes. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you'll be driving in the slow lane and that's okay too. That's okay too. Absolutely. And things don't last. So if all things will pass, things don't last. That is good and bad because yes, that's right. your happiness will not last, but also your sadness will not last. And that's how life is. And we go through those stages. And I think it's also not to thinking too much about like, am I happy every moment, just enjoying the ride, you know, and uh, just being in there. And I like Elaine. So just go with the flow, enjoy it. And then if you notice something interesting, be ready for a detour or pick up something or stop by and have a coffee. And that, that kind of like, I think uh, analogy would, would help to, to just also relax. And I think our, uh, we have the need to be happy. This is where we're born with it. This is something as children, you don't stop. You don't start thinking about worrying about things as a child. You're just, you're just happy in that moment. And that's what I've learned from uh, my son when he was a toddler, he was just being that zone. And I felt like, so envious of that but I do get that sometimes when I am intensely focused on something that I enjoy and that is the same thing so it's kind of also carried over through adulthood and just do that tap into that do as much as you can have that moment of your day say okay this is me time my needs are going to be met in any way I see fit as long as you don't hurt others of course yes but uh, and, and and you won't because I think things that make us truly happy will also make yourself and others happy. And if it's not doing that, then uh, it's not happiness, right? So it it goes hand in hand with also doing good. And I think that is one of the reasons why we are in this, in this phase and both of us here combined of like, we want to share that happiness with others. We want to make others happy too, because it feels good for us and we want them to feel good. And I think that is, that is how humans generally are. 
but we get confused and distracted and afraid and so on. So that's right. And the cool part is happiness is actually contagious. Yes. Yes. And so what I find is when I'm working with clients, right. And, and I, you know, it's not, I just want to make clear, like, so I'm a coach, I work one-on-one and it's not like we sit down and talk about like, how are we going to feel happy today? That's part of what we talk about, but it's a much wider conversation. That's really sort of more closely aligned to my book of how do you want to build a life that's going to allow you to invest in a maximum way in your happiness. I mean, that's really what it comes down to on an everyday basis. So, um, what was I going to say? Oh, one of the most fun things to watch is as they shift how they're living, as they shift how they're thinking, as they shift how they're behaving, as they shift what they know, seeing the ripple effects on the people around them, on their coworkers, on their family, on their communities. So it's like, not just about one person living happier, Mm -hmm. everything shifts. And so that's the really fun, exciting part for me in this work. Yes, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for this conversation, Becky. Uh, so your book is The Happiness Recipe. Uh, again, love the title. You have a butterfly on, on your cover. Any specific reason? For, I like butterflies, but any specific reason for that symbolic meaning? I mean, there's sort of, so there's a couple of, of reasons and I'll start. There's a little quick story. So a couple of years ago, a good friend of mine was sending her first child off to college. And she was understandably sort of like excited and grieving, right? As we do in those moments of transition. And I said to her, but it's, you know, like the exciting part is this is her butterfly season. Like you get to watch her spread her wings and see what she's going to bring to the world. And then as I was reflecting on that conversation, I was like, well, I went to college when I was 17. Was that my butterfly season? And if so, what have I been doing for the last 29 years? Because, or at that point, 27 years because that's kind of a bummer. Like, I don't want that to be my only butterfly season. And one of the very first foundational concepts I talk about in the book is the notion that our life is a series of seasons, right? That it's not, you don't, you don't pick like a top priority and then that stays your top priority for your whole life. Your, your priorities shift as your seasons shift. And we can have long seasons and short seasons. We can have seasons that we choose and seasons that find us. But I think life is a series of seasons, but it's also a series of butterfly seasons, maybe not always in order, but there are, you know, caterpillar seasons and there are cocoon seasons and there are beautiful butterfly seasons. And I think honoring which one you're in can actually remove a ton of the tension and friction that can drive unhappiness. So wonderful. Thank you so much. And you also have a website, untanglehappiness.com. Yes, that's right. And that is like one-stop shopping. If you're looking for a link for the book, it's there. If you want to connect with me on social media, it's there. And if you want to learn more about the coaching and education work that I do, it's there. Wonderful. Thank you so much for talking. This is such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Good luck to you.